Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU, at Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the new civil rights bullies. And Richard, we turn our focus this week to an organ of the federal government that doesn't usually get much attention on this broadcast, the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. And they are out, as you've detailed in your new column for Defining Ideas, with a new report entitled Peaceful Coexistence, Reconciling Non-Discrimination Principles with Civil Liberties. This, in some large measure, a result of the controversies that we've seen in recent years over business owners who, for example, don't want to provide goods or services for gay marriage ceremonies because they may have religious objections to the practice. And Richard, a touchy subject, of course, and one where you would hope that an organization like the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights would be doing the sort of difficult work of trying to thread the needle with some grace and, and some nuance. Does that, Richard, actually characterize how they're approaching this? Well, first of all, for the record, there are eight members of the Civil Rights Commission, and they're certainly not all unanimous on what they do. One person in particular who's been strongly against everything that the commission as a group stands for is a woman named Gail Harriet, who is one of my own students and has been very outspoken against the commission. And there's a good reason why. The chairman of the commission is a man named Martin Castro, and his public statements is, the phrase is liber religious liberty and religious freedom remain code words for discrimination, intolerance, racism, sexism, homophobia, Islamophobia, and Christian supremacy, or any other form of intolerance. That's pretty tough. And essentially when what happens is there are five members of the commission who write something about these laws um, which seek to get exceptions to the anti-discrimination laws, represent an orchestrated nationwide effort by extremists to promote bigotry cloaked in the mantle of religious freedom. So obviously the way in which you reconcile the two things is to simply disregard one of them in its entirety. And I have to say I'm certainly not a devout Christian. I'm not any kind of Christian at all. Uh, but to the extent that I find myself in a position of defending what I think are now discrete and insular minorities in the United States public, I don't like being tarred with a kind of brush which calls me an extremist or a hate monger or something else. And in fact, it seems to me that the broad blunderbuss attack of these commissioners exhibits the same kind of phobia towards ordinary Christians that they attacked on everybody else. So I regard this report, at least by its majority five, as a depressing indication of how far off the rails civil rights discourse has gone in the United States. We're going to be talking about this today sort of mostly at the principles level instead of the legal one. But there is an interesting point in the column that you wrote on this for Defining Ideas that I'd like to have you expand upon here because you note in there that when these cases are brought against people who turn away the business, the, the actual damages in, in some of the legal cases that have been brought here are vanishingly small. I mean essentially if the florist turns you down, it's the cost of driving to another florist. But the, the plaintiffs will argue that the, the greater injury, the, the real violence is the emotional damage, the ostracism that they feel when they're denied service. So on the one hand, Richard, physical injuries, monetary costs, much more tangible, much easier to get your head around. Emotional damage, that argument, when is that as a legal matter a legitimate cause of action? Well, um, emotional damages are an extremely complicated topic, but 
one of the things that you start to remember is virtually every one of us in every day and every part of our life are going to be snubbed or rejected by other people for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes it will be personal. I don't like you. Sometimes it's going to be, well, you know, this is a woman's club and you're a man and you really don't want to belong here. And sometimes it's going to be a merchant saying, I don't trust you on credit. Sometimes the merchant's going to say, I just don't want to do business with you because I don't like you. And the general rule is if you made every one of these emotional slights the subject to a legal action, the courts would do nothing but. Uh, so the way in which the legal system is resolved, it's starting with the second restatement, which was announced sort of you know, 50 years ago. Uh, the principle is if you want to go after emotional distress, apart from actual or threatened physical injury, you have to show that the conduct is extreme and outrageous. Semi-hysterical, abusive, yelling, screaming. There's one famous case involving an Oregon situation where a physician is approached by a woman, her sister or mother, I think it was, and her 10-day-old daughter in the middle of a rainstorm. The child is obviously in distress, and the physician says, get out in the rain, I don't want to take care of you. And eventually the child goes to a hospital, has a depressed fracture, which is fixed, and they sue, and they say, this kind of gruesome behavior by the doctor qualified. Um, in the typical case involving the um, uh, florists and involving the cake maker and so forth, what they do is they take all the business of everybody, including all these gay couples and people, and then when it comes to participating in a marriage ceremony of some sort or another by designing a bouquet arrangement or by baking a cake with a personalized mention on it, they said, we'll sell you the ingredients, but somebody else will have to put it together. So they're completely focused in what they do. If that counts as extreme and emotional distress, uh, then the entire thing is actually vaporized. So what happens in this report is that they don't use the common law standard. They invent their own, and which is you know, subjective harm of being insulted because of your status. And they assume that this is serious and grievous. Now, if that's serious and grievous, think of the harm that is being suffered uh, by these various people who purvey these services when they're attacked body and sold, pilloried in public, called phobic this, then phobic that. And now all of a sudden they get no redress whatsoever. So this is a world in which the people who are protected are protected against these microaggressions, which ought to be ignored by the legal system. And by virtue of the fact that they perceive themselves as being the victims of these aggressions, they regard it as perfectly appropriate for them to use the most abusive language and the most offensive talk against those with whom they disagree. It's very difficult to have public discourse when one side is completely disarmed and the other one is completely emboldened. Amongst the more, I guess, excitable critics of the case that you're making today, there are people who will draw an analogy to the civil rights era. And, and they'll say, Richard, it wasn't right for blacks to be turned away at the lunch counter, and it's no more right for a gay person to be turned away at a, at a bakery. How much stock do you put in that analogy? Well, first of all, you have to go back to the basis of the lunch counter cases, and it's a completely different social environment. One of the basic maxims are if you have a competitive economy and you can have this lunch counter next to that lunch counter, and it turns out that you have the existing lunch counters which have systematic subordination and no new entry arises, you know what's happening. There are a set of legal and non-legal and violent sanctions which keep the other people from coming in. Uh, so in the South, certainly at the time before the Civil Rights Act, there was a powerful government structural monopoly which meant that competitive forces don't work. And when competitive forces don't work, an anti-discrimination law is an appropriate countermeasure. The better countermeasure is to stop that kind of coercion. Change the sheriffs, change the way in which the law is enforced, 
let national vendors come in and open up their counters to everybody, and it will be fine. And we know this was true in the South because the biggest supporters of Title II, uh, which is the public accommodation provisions, were the national chains like Howard Johnson's and, well, not at the time, McDonald's. Yes, McDonald's and others who said, we can't do business in the South on a segregated basis. And if we try to open up, somebody's going to blow us up or harass our passengers and all the rest of it. So you just don't have competitive conditions there. And I've long maintained the moment you get competition, you will never see these grotesque distributions because there will always be somebody trying to serve that part of the market, which is basically abused by the abusers. And so the situation will equilibrate. In this situation, there's no threat of force. If anything, the group that is now claiming uh, that is the subject of discrimination is the dominant group in society. It's not a marginalized group in society. They have the law all the time behind them. And so for them to start to say that the sort of moral hurt of having a Christian honor his or her own beliefs on these matters, when the cost to them is $7 and a little emotional distress, think of it this way. In a competitive economy, you as a customer have an equal, easy substitute. But you as the provider of services, if subject to the anti-discrimination law for which there's no religious exemption, you're put out of business. Which of the two is the greater harm? And it's clearly the latter. And the legal system, even with a Title II on the books, should try to make sure that the religious exemption, particularly since it's constitutionally grounded, but even if it's not, uh, should be rejected. This is a case of real tyrannical behavior in which a dominant group wants to snuff out anybody who disagrees with them on everything. And so the intolerance comes from the Civil Rights Commission. It doesn't come uh, from these poor bakers and from these um, uh, poor florists. So let me take the flip side of that for a moment and make have you make explicit what I think was implicit in what you were saying there, which is that if you have a sufficiently competitive market – these laws are at best probably just redundant and at worst throw up a lot of barriers. So explain for us the situations in which you would countenance anti-discrimination laws. Oh, sure. I mean, the major case has to do with the provision of services by common carriers and by public utilities. And the non-discrimination rules are counteracting towards these natural monopolies, sometimes created by geography, sometimes created by law, have been recognized since the late part of the 17th century. Um, What you think about the situation is this. The services that these people are demanding are perfectly fungible services. They want electricity piped into the house. They want to be sitting on a train. If you don't let the monopolists do them, if you don't make the monopolists provide those services, these people are without power and without transportation. So the refusal to deal is absolutely devastating because you don't have this easy alternative down the block. What you then have to do, of course, is to worry about the opposite problem, which is that people will get good services for nothing. And so the answer is they have to pay, but they have to pay fair and reasonable rates, which means that you can't charge them a monopoly price and you can't pick favorites amongst the group so as to charge one side more than the other, which is why the principle called FRAN, fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory rates, has long been a part of public utility law. And the modern effort is to essentially make this florist into a public utility but her services are highly individualized and there are lots of alternatives so that the essentially analogy breaks down on both sides. Um, There's no reason to do it for the customer and there's every reason not to do it for the provider. Richard, I I apologize for asking you this macro question this late in the discussion, but it it does seem that on the left – you hear hints of this in President Obama sometimes – 
that the, the working definition of freedom of religion is effectively being narrowed to freedom of worship, which is to say that you can, you can do whatever you want in your church, in your synagogue, in your mosque, knock yourself out. But you check a lot of those privileges at the door when you enter into broader society, commercial or otherwise. Now, to go to the other end of the spectrum, you and I have discussed before on this show the idea that religious freedom can't be absolute either. So exemplary classical liberal that you are, could, could you give us sort of in broad brushstrokes your sense of the, the proper scope of religious liberty protections? Sure. I mean the first thing to understand is religious liberty is a subset of other liberties. And liberty in the standard classical liberal sense is not license. So if somebody says, to use the standard hypothetical, that the only way I can discharge my religious rights is to murder the children of other people, uh, your freedom of religion does not allow you to make sacrifices of them. Indeed, even with respect to your own children, you're a guardian of them. And if you want to kill them for some particular religious reason, the state could come in saying it's a breach of your guardianship duty and stop that. Uh, so that's the reason why religious liberty is not to be regarded as absolute. But on the other hand, if you look at the constitutional provision, it talks about the free exercise of religion, of which worship is only a subset. So, for example, what about educating your children in the religious tradition? What about having a workplace, for example, which absorbs food laws which are particular and congenial to your religion? Um, does the Constitution not protect the kosher butcher who wants to essentially only sell kosher meats and only serve them inside his shop? Free exercise means the way in which you conduct not only your religious activities, but everything that you believe has a religious component to it. Now, it's interesting, if you look at the Civil Rights Commission, first they give you this exaggerated definition of what counts as an individual harm, and then uh, they take exactly the opposite position, and they tell religious people what their religion does. So let me just read a passage from the report, whose angriness, I think, uh, sort of reveals its narrowness of spirit. It says, providing commercial goods and services does not require one blesses an event, taking pictures is not testifying to one's spiritual endorsement of a legally recognized sub-ceremony. Frosting a cake is not helping to subsidize something believed to be a tradition of divine law. Selling flowers is not contributing to a marriage celebration. These are secular commercial quid pro quo transactions, straightforward exchanges of products and services for money. Well, I mean, only an ignoramus of the religious tradition would say that by virtue of the fact that you're in commerce, that you're outside the scope of your religious obligation. And it's long been held as a First Amendment matter and clearly correct as a matter of principle uh, that a religious person gets to define the scope of his or her own beliefs and cannot have that definition being put upon him. So first what you do is you see this wretched Civil Rights Commission completely transform the, world, the law on emotional harm, and then it turns around and it completely constricts the definition of what counts as religious freedom in the exercise of ordinary businesses. So what they basically are trying to tell you is that once you go out into the business, any restriction that they want to put upon you is essentially something that you have to live with. This is an intolerably narrow definition of religious liberty. Uh, the Constitution wasn't written that way. Political theory doesn't work that way. You're not an absolutist on religious liberty when you say, in effect, that people can define the 
the kinds of services that they want to give. This is not a situation where they're going to go out and burn crosses on somebody else's loan. The refusal to deal with a competitive market is a fundamental sign of freedom in any kind of an economy. And if you define every market as it's imperfect and every action in every market as having negative external effects, competition disappears. And when that disappears, liberty disappears with it. So the last thing that I'll ask you today, Richard, a lot of these – the debates themselves, to say nothing of the way that they're actually resolved, would seem way outside of the mainstream of American politics as, as recently as the Clinton administration, the George W. Bush administration for that matter. We have seen a really dramatic shift in both elite and popular sentiment on these questions in recent years, although maybe to differing degrees between the two of those. Is there a sense – and this is usually more a conservative argument than a libertarian one – but is there a sense in which we're, we're moving too fast on this one, that it's not healthy to live in a polity where Barack Obama can run for president saying that he believes marriage is exclusively between one man and one woman and then finish out his time in office in a country where people are being hauled into court for refusing to serve as a gay wedding? Well, look, my view about this is it's not just a question of moving too fast. It's moving in the wrong direction for the wrong reasons. Um, the source of all this mischief was a terrible opinion by Justice Scalia, one of his very worst, on the Supreme Court in a case called Smith against the Employment Folks. And this was a convoluted procedural situation in which the gist of it was religious liberty is only an equal protection clause, which says you can't single out religions for worse treatment than anybody else. But if you give them identical treatment, the disparate impact doesn't matter. So under the Scalia formulation, if you told everybody in the military, even everybody who's drafted into the military, that you have to eat pork, then you could tell a Jewish person or a Muslim person that you have to eat pork. At the time, this provoked the most incredible reaction from left and right, because the tradition of America had always been the tradition of accommodation. So even if you generally serve pork, if you have Jewish or Muslim people in the army, you would try to find some food that was acceptable to them. The same thing with dress. You can't go all the way because if somebody wants to wear a huge caftan on their head and they can't put a helmet on, it's going to disrupt the way the operations work. So the operative word was accommodation. And it's exactly that word which is completely ignored, belittled, and derided today. To give you an idea of how bad it is in this state case that's taking place right now in Washington state, it's the local chapter of the American Civil Liberties Union, a genuinely authoritarian operation in this particular case, this particular chapter, which is bringing the suit against this woman um, who essentially refused to make the, flower, the floral decay. You know, this is not a very good thing. Well, I mean, the American Civil Liberties Union was four square in favor of the Religious Restoration Act of 1993, uh, which was designed to make sure that these accommodations would exist, um, notwithstanding the very poor decision that had been made in Smith. Well, the ACLU has changed its position on that, and it's taken the line that you just mentioned, worship only is what matters. Everything else is sort of fair game. And so they are now hounding these people. The idea that you can be somebody who calls yourself a liberty organization, civil or otherwise, and then start to engage in this kind of aggressive behavior just simply staggers the mind. Think of it this way. Uh, the 
company in the Washington case is called Arlene's Flower. Its only proprietor is a woman named Baron L. Stutzman. And she's up against this poor woman, against the, one of the greatest liber, you know, litigating operation machines in the history of the United States, backed by all the local governments. Why is it that they have to squash little people? Why is it that they have to be bullies is simply beyond me. It simply is the lack of any reflection of what limits should do in a decent society, even if you had a right like this one, you wouldn't exercise it. And, and the fellow, Mr. Ingersoll, who decided to report this case in and then bring the lawsuit for $7.91 plus attorney's fees, um, which is a big deal in this case, he should be ashamed of himself. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.